This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 54, Unsolved Science Mysteries. Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Joss Virala, your oracular host, and thanks for being here. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, and feel free to send me a haiku or whatever, either a past topic or something fun. And I'll read your haiku on an episode at some point. Just send them to contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. And remember to share the show if you like it. Even if you don't like it, share it anyways. Maybe someone else will like it. Hey, you know what's puzzling? Puzzles. Or more specifically, puzzles that baffle science. I'm talking about unsolved mysteries of science. And today, we'll look at a few questions that remain unanswered. And where possible, explore some theories and possibilities. But more than likely, these head-scratchers will just end up leaving you just as perplexed as some of the world's most powerful brains. Although, maybe you might have an answer for them, in which case, definitely send me an email. But in any case, here's what I know. From the meaning of life to why do men have nipples, there are many questions that keep us up at night. And while life and nipples are both important questions, here are a few that you may not have considered. Let's start with prime numbers. That's right, math. The mysterious and seductive study of numbers. And within math, there are many questions, but arguably one of the most puzzling of math mysteries is prime numbers. Now, you'd think, oh, that's easy. Prime numbers are just numbers that are only divisible by itself and one without leaving a remainder. So for example, five is a prime number. There is an infinite number of primes, but the hardest thing to know about prime numbers is where they occur. You'd think there would be an easy math pattern to discover them, but they seem to just be random, and as a result, we can't really predict them. But this is actually very useful because the internet cryptography is based on not understanding prime numbers. You can't predict them. So code crackers are actually trying to solve prime mathematical problems. If we knew more about prime numbers, the internet would be less safe. Now, within prime numbers, there occurs every so often a set of twin primes. That is, numbers that differ by two. For example, three and five, and five and seven, and 11 and 13 are all twin primes. The idea is that twin primes are infinite, But, as this isn't proven, it is what is known as a conjecture, or basically an opinion based on observation. The twin prime conjecture. And, as of September 2016, based on my Wikipedia search, the largest set of twin prime numbers is 2,996,863,034,895 times 2 to the 1,290,000 power, plus one. And its pair is the same number, just minus one. Now, the gaps between prime numbers, not twin primes, but normal prime numbers, generally, get bigger and bigger. 
but the gap appears random, so you can't predict where the next prime number will be. And as of now, the biggest prime number we know, as of January 2018, from Wikipedia again, is 2 to the 77,232,917th power minus 1. Now, the world of primes is deep and mind-warping, but the ultimate goal is to find a pattern or way to predict prime numbers. But I think that's enough math for now. I'll put a video to some people way smarter than I am talking about this in the show notes, so check it out if you want to get a better idea of primes. Let's move on to another mystery. The placebo effect. Most of you probably have heard of this. The placebo effect is when someone thinks they are receiving treatment or medicine for something and they then see an improvement even though the treatment is fake and doesn't have any actual effect. This could be something like a pain relief medicine given to someone to make them feel better, but instead of getting an actual medicine dose, they might just be getting a sugar pill. And placebo means I shall please in Latin. Here's a pretty famous case of a placebo effect. In 1957, there was a man who is known as Mr. Wright. It's an alias. And this guy, he had cancer. Tumors all throughout his body the size of oranges. This guy had it bad and was given little time to live. Like, I'm talking only a few days, guys. Now, Mr. Wright heard of an experimental drug called Cribiozin and begged his doctors to use it. So, after a little bit of begging, the doctors were like, Okay, we'll let you have some. And they gave Wright the injection. And Wright lived past the few days that his doctors had expected him to live. And the next week, the doctors re-examined him and they found his tumors were nearly half reduced in size. He seemed to have been cured and was no longer on his deathbed. He was moving about just like he didn't have any sickness at all. Now, two months later though, Mr. Wright was reading again. And this time, he read that Cribiozin was actually hokum and didn't cure anything. Wright, reading this, quickly relapsed as he believed now that his treatment had failed. So, he's back in the hospital with big tumors again. But this time, his doctors thought they would try a little experiment. And they told Mr. Wright that the initial Cribiozin he received was a deteriorated batch. And they had a new, more potent version of the drug that was super concentrated. So the doctors went through an elaborate procedure and injected Mr. Wright with the new super medicine. Again, Mr. Wright sprang forth and seemingly was on the mend with his tumors melting away as they did before. The only thing was that the new Cribiozin was actually just an injection of plain old water. So Wright was good for another few months until again he was reading a new study from the American Medical Association stating that definitively Cribiozin was worthless and had no medical value. Wright accepted what he read and soon his cancer returned and he died two days later. I guess the moral of the story is that reading can kill you. But seriously, placebo experiments have been done a lot and the finds are that the placebo effect works largely 30% of the time. Another experiment was conducted on asthmatic patients on Coche Island in Venezuela. The patients were given a smell of vanilla along with actual medicine from an inhaler. Then eventually, just the scent of vanilla alone was used 
And the find was that the smell alone increased lung function of the patients about 33% of the time. That's pretty amazing. And you know, the placebo effect has been known for a long time, and since the 1700s, doctors have used the term placebo when giving fake drugs to people to make them feel better. But it's not just medicine that has a placebo effect. Fake surgeries and even rubbing dirt on a wound to make a kid with a scraped knee stop crying can all be classified as placebo effects. Even placebo buttons can have effect on people. Like, you know that crosswalk you guys go to and you push the button to make the light change so you can cross the intersection? Most of those buttons don't actually work. They just make you think they do. So what's this all about? How does the placebo effect work? Well, we don't really know. But theories include patients just wanting to please the doctors with positive results, or a patient simply expecting good results from treatment somehow trigger physiological factors that improve their conditions. The power of thought, right? The brain releases chemicals, and some of those called endorphins are thought to maybe help in getting people better in situations. If you expect something to work, your brain tricks your body's chemistry into making it work. But how, we still don't really know. But the placebo effect is weird and can fade over time and have different results in different people. For example, a placebo sugar pill may be half as effective at treating pain as an aspirin. And that same placebo pill may be half as effective at relieving pain as morphine. That's crazy because aspirin and morphine are very different, morphine being much stronger than aspirin, obviously. Now conversely, saying that the same placebo drug increases pain will show people taking it will express an increase in pain. Placebo effects can be bigger if the pill is bigger, or you take more than one, and it doesn't just stop there. Injections work better than pills, and fancy lab machines work better than injections. Brand name pills get more effects than no name pills. The color of the pill has an effect. More expensive pills are more effective than discounted ones, and even the packaging on the box has an effect. Here's something you can kind of do as an experiment with your friends. Buy some cheap wine, but then tell people it's an expensive $100 bottle of wine, and they will tell you how amazing that wine is. But you know it's just the crap that you bought at the grocery store. Placebos are lies that heal, and it's all in your mind. Something we don't fully understand. Really, there's a lot here, and some of this even overlap into how people are manipulated easily by marketing and political propaganda. But that is an entire episode in and of itself, so let's just move on. If you're listening to this, chances are you're right-handed. Left-handedness accounts for only about 10% of the world's population. In North America, lefties are about 12% of the population, and in places like Korea and Japan, lefties are only about 2% of the population. Now in North America, men are more likely than women to be left-handed, and twins express left-handedness about twice as often as the general population. There are a lot of other interesting facts relating to handedness, which I'll link in the show notes for you. But why are people left-handed? Science, again, doesn't know why exactly, although there are theories. Neurological theories express the brain just routes the tasks of motor skills to the same side of the brain, thus making it more efficient. 
Another biological theory is that handedness starts in the womb, and left-handedness can correlate with increased frequency of central nervous system disorders like epilepsy, schizophrenia, etc. Essentially, this theory says that lefties are just slightly brain-damaged right-handers and that can develop in the womb. A genetic theory, though, may be possible, but it appears that it isn't as simple as dominant versus recessive traits passed from parents. And scientists say genetics can be a factor, but only about 25% of the time when determining which hand you use. Now, evolutionary theories ranging from baby carrying and fighting exist, but these are hard to test and or prove. Plus, humans appear to be the only animals with a strong right-left preference in handedness. Still, societal slash environmental theories indicate that most of us are right-handed because that's how society has raised us. Right-handed teachers teach kids either consciously or subconsciously to be right-handed. Or conversely, to fit in, kids mimic their teachers even if they are left-handed, thus becoming right-handed. So this would be considered a cultural thing. But it doesn't well explain why the majority of people are right-handed in the first place, or why lefties even still exist. There are some other further out there theories like sun worship, but my personal theory is because it made going for high fives more in sync. One myth though that can be dispelled is that being left-handed doesn't make you more creative or artsy. It can indicate though more anger towards spiral notebooks. Here's another mystery that you would think would have an obvious answer to it. The giraffe's long neck. At almost 20 feet tall, giraffes are the tallest animal on land. I know right now a lot of you are saying, duh Josh, giraffes have long necks so they can eat from the treetops, thus avoiding competition. Haha. <laughs> ah, but not so fast. Since the 90s, it was observed that giraffes don't actually spend that much time foraging in the treetops. And during scarce food times, female giraffes actually spend up to half of their time with their necks in a horizontal position, indicating they were foraging on smaller shrubs. Shrubs that are well within the reach of their so-called competition, antelopes and other herbivores. You would think that with their neck advantage, they would spend more time exploiting the treetops. So the argument from these scientists was that a giraffe's neck was actually used more for battle. When adult giraffes fight, they use their necks to whip their head at their foes like maces. The male skulls, after all, were thick and capable of breaking bones. The longer the neck, the greater force you can generate ensuring you are victorious. The male with the longer necks mate more. Ah, but then why are female giraffe necks so long? You see, male giraffe necks are only slightly longer than females, and the difference between male and female necks is so small that sexual selection preference doesn't really fit here. Now, another theory is that their necks are so long so that they can more easily spot predators. Or yet another theory is that a longer neck increases its surface area, allowing it to better regulate body temperature. The skinny animal can just turn sideways to allow more heat to escape from its body, or turn into the sun to gain more warmth. Or maybe still their long necks are tied to their long legs. 
being so high off the ground, they would have difficulty drinking unless their necks were longer so that they could more easily drink from watering holes. But then why are their legs so long? That's just another set of questions. The point is we aren't exactly sure, so all you biologists out there get to work and get us some answers. Or at least breed us a miniature three-foot-high giraffe that we can keep as pets. Let's stay in the animal kingdom, shall we, and talk butterflies. Specifically, the majestic monarch butterfly. If you live in North America, you've seen these creatures, and you probably didn't know that there is a huge mystery involving this seemingly simple insect. Monarch butterflies can be seen from Mexico up to Canada. And since they don't like the cold, they need to migrate from the cold regions to their winter home in Mexico. And yes, monarchs west of the Rockies do winter in California, but the vast majority of monarchs winter in Mexico, so these are the ones I'm focusing on and the one that the mystery fits in. The journey from Canada to Mexico can be about 3,000 miles. Now this alone is impressive, especially for an insect. But the truly mysterious part is that no one butterfly ever makes the entire trip. Let's go through a life cycle of a monarch butterfly to give you a better idea of the mystery. So in January and February-ish, monarchs start from their winter home in Mexico, huddled by the millions in a 73 mile wide region. I will point out that where monarch butterflies go in the winter wasn't known until 1975, and it took 40 years of searching to figure it out. Anyways, these winter monarchs live there between four and five months in their cold climate. When it starts to get warmer in March and April, they unhuddle from their forest sanctuary and start meandering north to look for mates and plop them eggs out. Then they die. In May and June, those eggs hatch, and we'll call this the first generation of monarchs as they are going from egg to caterpillar, chrysalis, and adult butterfly. These butterflies continue moving north, and in May and June, the second generation of butterflies is born, all the while moving northward. By July and August, the third and fourth generation of butterfly is born. By this time, the monarchs have made it up to Canada, and the next generation, the fifth generation, is the group of monarchs that will make the 3,000-mile journey back home to Mexico. They will live between six and nine months and are the great-great-grandchildren of the monarchs that had flown north the previous year. They have never been to the overwinter sites in Mexico and are sometimes referred to as the Methuselah generation because of their longevity, which is equivalent to 600 human years, considering most monarch butterflies only live six to eight weeks. So that was a lot of information, but to summarize, the Methuselah generation is the generation of monarchs that begins in Canada and ends in Mexico. When they arrive in Mexico, they will overwinter in a semi-dormant state, then give birth to the next generation of butterflies. And the Methuselah's great-great-grandchildren then give birth to the next Methuselahs in Canada the following year. So that's a five-generation cycle that take part in a huge migration, and the puzzling part is, how does a butterfly born five generations apart and 3,000 miles away know how to make it back home to the place it has never been. And additionally, all those other generations, how do they know how to get up to Canada? It's a baffling mystery. 
Clearly, it is some sort of inherited migration trait, one that no other species we know exhibits, and we aren't sure how this happens. It's not like the monarchs talk to their children and say, Pass along this info for your kids' kids of how to get back to warmth in Mexico. That's my geezer butterfly voice, in case you didn't know. Some sort of GPS system, though, is embedded in these butterflies. But what makes it more interesting is that they have to thread a geographic needle to make it home so that they don't end up over the Gulf of Mexico or errantly just at some random place. What's funny is that back in the day, early Mexicans wondered where the monarch butterflies came from. And because their arrival in Mexico lines up with the Day of the Dead, they thought the monarchs were the spirits of past ancestors. Which may be just as good an explanation as anything else. Okay, so our final science mystery is what the heck is dark energy and dark matter? Fans of science fiction probably hear these terms thrown out as some generic, vague explanation of science stuff. And honestly, that's not too far off from how actual science uses the term because the fact that the matter is dark energy and dark matter is unknown. So here is what we know. Everything you know of as stuff, you and me, rocks, your Hot Wheels car collection, stars, and interstellar gas is matter which accounts for less than 5% of the mass of the universe. So of all the stuff you can see and touch and kind of examine with your eye, that's only 5% of the universe. Now roughly 25% of the universe is made up of dark matter and the remaining 70% is dark energy. How do they know the mass of the universe, you ask? I don't know. It takes very technical calculations and measurements, relying on various things, and unless scientists use a very large scale, I'm out of guesses. But just know it's a lot of math and science, and about 75% of the mass of the universe we can't see. Dark matter and dark energy. That's what we can't see. So everything we ever interact with and observe is only a tiny small part of what makes up reality. Weird, right? But Josh, if we don't know what dark energy and dark matter is, and we can't see it, how do we know it exists? Well, when we look at the structure of the universe and do science calculations, we figure out that there isn't enough regular matter out there to hold galaxies together with gravity. In fact, if only visible matter existed, the gravity pull would probably not be conducive to even forming galaxies and stars would just be scattered all over the place. So because galaxies are held together, we can conclude that there is something out there providing more gravity for everything to stay together. But these things we can't see. They are dark. But despite the fact we can't visibly see them, we can kinda see disturbances in the way that light bends around an area that has a large concentration of something that we can't see. Does that make sense? So basically, we can see light being manipulated and bending around objects out there that is just dark, so like that's what we call dark matter. But even though we don't know what it is, we know what it is not. If it was regular matter, we could still detect certain particles coming from them and we know it's not antimatter because antimatter would also produce gamma rays. So you may think, well this sounds an awful lot like black holes, Josh. We just can't see them because of the gravitational pull is so great we don't see any light there. 
Ah, but dark matter is scattered all over the place, much more common than black holes, and again, we could detect some other particle coming from and around the black hole. So we know there is a lot of something out there that is affecting gravity. The leading best guess is that dark matter is made of some new unknown particle that doesn't interact with light and matter in the way we know. Not a very good explanation, right? Well, that's all we got. Okay, so what about dark energy? Well, as much as we know about dark matter, we know even less about dark energy. Undetectable and unmeasurable, the only thing we see about dark energy is the way it interacts with things. Okay, so galaxies far away tend to emit light waves on the red end of the spectrum. This is known as red shift. Closer galaxies don't display the red shift as much, so that's how we know it's further away. So, redshift happens because as the universe expands, the light waves are stretched and longer wavelengths can travel further, so the red light is what is prevalent. Okay, now it is thought that the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating and space itself doesn't change its properties as it expands. But we don't see the expansion of empty space or creation of more space. But if the universe is expanding, more space is forming, and wherever there is empty space, there is energy in it. This dark energy in empty space has more energy in it than everything visible in the universe combined. Basically, dark energy is a repulsive force that is countering the effects of gravity, which is causing the universe to expand at an accelerated rate. I know, this stuff hurts my brain too, guys, but stay with me. So dark energy might not be an actual thing per se, but rather a property of space. Now, this is similar to Einstein's theory of a cosmological constant, a force that counters gravity, but when we try to calculate this, it doesn't quite add up and just makes things weirder. Maybe Einstein's theory of gravity is out of whack and we need a new, better theory to explain it. I'm all ears if you got one. Another theory of dark energy is that empty space is just filled with temporary particles that pop up and disappear randomly. These particles would leave residual energy, that is, dark energy. Or dark energy could just be a mysterious, unknown energy field in the universe that has an opposite effect that normal energy has. We don't know, and we don't know how to detect it. So science has a problem it can't name, and we don't know how to detect it. But we do have an answer for the problem just waiting for the solution to be worked out. And that is, of course, dark energy. And those are just some of the unanswered mysteries in science. And now you know what I know. Or now you know what I pretty much don't know. Science is fun, but also really weird. I know everyone loves science and all the answers it helps put in place for us, but honestly, I find the unanswered parts of science more fascinating than what we have figured out so far. Hey, it keeps you on your toes, right? You know what else keeps you on your toes? The haiku! <laughs> Wisdom can be mean. I at one time was blinded by she with science. And that's all the time I got this week, guys. Check out our main site for other incredible stories on IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. Send me an email or haiku at contact at IncredibleStoriesPodcast.com. 
Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Adventures of Florida